We thank you so much, Lord, for this day. We thank you for your grace, Lord. We thank you for sustaining us. And, uh, Lord, we do want to lift up and pray for these people, these dear people outside, Lord. Pray that no one was seriously injured. Father, we protect that you as the giver and taker of life would be merciful, Lord, and that even in the midst of calamity, as you often do, that you would uh, awaken a sense of mortality and the brevity of life in these people and show them their desperate need for eternal security through Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we thank you that you are able to do this, Lord, and thank you for getting all our families here safe today. And everyone else that may be coming today, Lord, we pray that you would protect them on the way, give them traveling mercies, Father. And today I pray that you would just bless our time together in the study of theology. We ask that you would be glorified and that you would teach us, Lord, and that you would make us better uh, students uh, of Scripture. Help us to understand the faith, to defend the faith, and help us to, more importantly than all, probably just help us to live the faith Father, for your glory, for the glory of our great God and King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I was kind of debating what to teach today. Uh, I was kind of toggling back and forth between the uh, Order Salutis and the Historia Salutis. Who wants to tell us what the Historia Salutis is? Anyone? Jai, do you know what that is? History of salvation. That's right. So what's the Order Salutis? Uh, the, when you say order of salvation, what does that mean? Uh, so sort of like the uh, procession in which you seem to occur justification. Okay. Yeah, you want to come up and teach? <laughs> the ordo salutis. Okay. Yeah, these are very important. In, in theology, I guess we can talk about salvation along either one of these lines. Obviously, these two are related, but they're totally different. Because while the order of salvation is going to be concerned with organizing the various aspects or what they call the components of salvation, like, uh, for example, uh, oh boy, where do we start, right? Well, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about foreknowledge, for example, right? Uh, so foreknowledge uh, is going to be you know, kind of primary, and then after that you have like election, right? And then you have predestination, uh, let's put predestination, and then what's after predestination? Probably uh, the effectual uh, well, regeneration, regen, effectual call. So we'll talk about these today, uh, effectual calling. Okay, after effectual calling, then you have uh, justification. Okay, after justification, you have adoption, right? And then after adoption, you have sanctification, but here's the deal. Sanctification really has two aspects to it. There is a definitive, uh, how do you spell definitive? Uh, D-E, thank you. And then, <laughs> and then you have, no, seriously. And then you have a progressive sanctification. After sanctification, then you have what theologians would call preservation. Uh, and then oh, preservation, but really, uh, let's talk about perseverance. Uh, and then after perseverance, uh, what do you have after perseverance? Anybody know what the next step is? Anything happens before pers- perseverance and glorification? What has to happen before glorification? Death. That's right. I can't forget that part of it. And then glorification. Okay? And this is the ordo. So we can go through this, you know, and I've done this. I've actually gone through class uh, with each one of these and... Uh, talked about how they relate and, you know, how God works all these things out. But in the Historia Salutis, you're talking about something totally different, you know. 
the history of salvation. I mean, you're talking about how God saves his people. And so in the historia, historia, you're talking about really uh, the plan, right? The plan of redemption. And uh, where does the plan of redemption begin? Well, the plan of redemption begins in eternity uh, with a covenant. Covenant of what? Covenant of redemption. And uh, what is the covenant of redemption? Well, the covenant of redemption is referring to the Trinity. Okay? So let's stop right there because we made plenty mess now. Uh, but, you know, when you're talking about the covenant of redemption, you're talking about the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and how they made a pact together in eternity past before the world was, basically. You know, what does Ephesians 1 tell us? We're going to look at that, right? Ephesians 1 says what? It says, you know, even before the foundation of the world, right? That, uh, that word there, ekbalo, that, that word literally means before God threw down the foundations of the world. He chose us in him. He predestined us in Christ. You see that? So even before there was any factor involved, anything like that, uh, what does Paul say in Romans chapter 9, right? As he talks about Jacob and Esau, uh, beginning in verse uh, uh, 11 and following, he says, you know, uh, you know, it's not according to him who wills or him who runs, but God, right, who shows mercy and God who makes a choice. So it's almost like God's election is free and unfettered, you know, there's nothing that influences his election other than his own perfect triune counsel. <laughs> so, you know, uh, this is important, you know, guys, because, I mean, it's amazing to me how over the years, you know, you think you have one, uh, you know, you think you have one controversy licked or you think you're kind of over the hurdle of dealing with this one issue or whatnot, whether it's, you know, kind of like Arminian or Pelagian theology and then you come to find out, well, that's making a comeback or there's certain pockets or maybe you're involved with certain friends that are, you know, involved in this theology and suddenly it becomes relevant again. So you got to kind of know where you stand on all this stuff. You know what I mean? And so uh, in, the, in the history of creation and then uh, after, of course, then God covenants, you know, to redeem man. And then he reveals himself as creator in the plan of redemption. He is creator. He is redeemer. Right. And he is consummator. I guess an easy way to say this is that God is what? Alpha and Omega. Isn't that amazing? Right? So God reveals himself as the beginning and the end. And uh, the plan of redemption has to do with that. Uh, and then w- as a result of the consummation of redemption, then Paul says, you know, uh, so that God will be all in all. So it's almost like everything is... You know, you read the Bible and you get these little pieces of information, right? God made the world, little pieces of information, right? And he made the stars, <laughs> just a little bit of information, right? I mean, these great mammoth realities, you know. And then you get this uh, sort of primitive development in the history of redemption. You get, you know, God creates uh, Adam and Eve, uh, you know, and then after that, you know, he starts a society. Uh, the line of Seth is the line that we're supposed to be following, and then that culminates in the table of the nations in Genesis chapter 10 so that we understand from a biblical perspective, not from a dry history of humanities, like you go to college or something, they're going to teach you like the history, the history of civilization and how it developed, you see. But that has to do with evolution and, and, and kind of following man that way in a sociology kind of fashion. But, you know, the Bible's not concerned. It could have, right, the Bible could have given us 12 volumes on how every civilization arose in the history of the world and answered every detail about everything. 
everything. But that's not the concern in Scripture. The concern in Scripture is the Historia Salutis. It is the plan of redemption. It is God's you know, plan to save his people. So, um, And then, you know, you get these, uh, you get these other uh, pieces to the puzzle, so to speak. You know, you get, to, you get Abraham comes in, and, and God uh, gives him a very great promise. You know, and I know I skipped Noah, but, you know, you get, you get Abraham, and then you get the nation of Israel. You get the Exodus, right? And from the Exodus, then you get the kingdom. See how God is put every, putting everything together, right? And then throughout it all, this is what's important as you study the plan of salvation, the history of salvation, is that everything is... And so we did a lot of work uh, on this. Everything is Christocentric, right? Everything is Christ-centered. So everything in the plan of salvation, you can never take your eyes off of Christ. I mean, I'm learning this more and more and more as I'm going through Isaiah. It's like Isaiah is a total, you know, Christ-centered biblical theologian, you know? So when we say biblical theologian, when I say biblical theologian, uh, what do I mean? Do I mean that our theology is biblical, like sound? <laughs> what, what does it mean? Anyone? Anyone? Like a biblical theology? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So, uh, you know, uh, biblical theology is a department of theology, just like systematic theology, just like historical theology. Uh, just like uh, uh, practical or pastoral theology, biblical theology is a department. It is a science. It's a category of theology. You guys all have to know that. Uh, and so when people speak of a biblical theologian, it's someone who knows how to basically hang the whole story of Scripture together, how to pull all the, all the different aspects of the story of the Bible into one organic system. or It's not even a system, but one organic whole, one organic story. You know, that's what it's all about. I mean, that's what I'm fascinated with. You know, I think I'm going to die trying to do this. You know, like, I think I'm going to die trying to piece together the whole story of the Bible and trying to figure out how all the little meticulous details of the text go together. You know, as much as God will allow me, you know, sometimes it's like, it's like a, it's like a, I don't know what it's like. It's like an hourglass, and the more that I study and the harder I study, the faster the, the sand goes through. It's like, oh, no, I'm losing, <laughs> I'm losing ground. It's like, I better hurry up. But if I hurry up, then, you know, my life is going to go by fast. See these little games that you play in your mind. But, of course, time doesn't move for me. But you know what I mean? It's like that. Uh, but uh, because this is the way that we ought to think, let me throw some scriptures out there for you guys. Biblical theology. Here's a big one, okay? You go back and look at this. Acts chapter 7. Right. Acts chapter seven, I say, you know, like that's where you have a person in the Bible doing biblical theology. Stephen at his martyrdom. I mean, think about that. I mean, I think we should just I think we should just hand out the award now. You know, Stephen is the greatest biblical theologian ever to live on the face of the earth. Why? Because at his martyrdom, he was teaching biblical theology. (laughs) He goes all the way from the patriarchs, and then he he even implies prior to that, but he goes all the way from the patriarch Abraham all the way to the Christ, the righteous one, and he develops and traces, I mean, I don't know, 50 verses? He traces the whole plan of God through redemption all the way through the, you know, the, the, all the way through the uh, the Exodus and all the way through the the Davidic kingdom and the and all of the building of the temple and Solomon and all the way to Christ, you know, amazing through the prophets and everything. He ties it all together. So Acts chapter seven is really important. Any other uh, passages that kind of stand? How about Jesus? Jesus at twenty six, twenty six, twenty seven. 
27, 44, and following, if you're writing down scriptures. Uh, Luke chapter 24. Somebody want to read that for us? Uh, anybody? Who's fastest here? Who's got the quickest draw of the text, huh? Should be a King James person. Anybody have King James? Oh, yes. You're in trouble now. <laughs> can you, okay, can you read it for us? Even we will allow the King James to be read. So uh, read at 26 and 27. Okay, this is Jesus now teaching us to think in a way that is a biblical theological way, but in a way that it's a, a Christocentric biblical theology. Okay, go ahead. Yes, ma'am. 26 and 20, yeah, Luke 24, verse 26 and 27. Let me think about that. Do we do that? Do we begin with Moses? Which, where does that begin? Genesis, Genesis what? What? Oh, give me your uh, grade show, F. <laughs> Genesis 3.15, is that where Moses begins? <laughs> what is it? Verse 1. <laughs> That's a trick question. I'm sorry. Yeah, you were, you, you, you were ready to roll. I could see it. You already had the covenant of grace in your mind. You know, you're a cage stage covenantalist is what you are. It all came out right there. Um, yes, beginning with Moses. And so then you have to ask yourself, is that what we do? Do we begin with Moses to show everywhere where it talks about Jesus? And what does it say? Verse 26 again. Listen carefully. Listen, listen, listen very carefully here. Stop right there. So what? What Jesus is talking about here is the dual, what? The dual estates of Christ. What is that? That's right. So he gives us a little clue, okay, of what we're supposed to be looking for in the Bible. What we're supposed to be looking for in the Bible is the fact that the Christ, (laughs) beginning with Moses, we're, we're already supposed to be picking up on this. The Christ is supposed to enter his, a state of humility, culminated by his death, and a state of exaltation, culminated by his sitting at the right hand of power from on high. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, for example, right? Um, and then uh, that's ultimately talking about uh, Psalm 110. So uh, you can see from even Jesus' words, right, that the way he read... The uh, G- uh, uh, Moses, the Psalms, the prophets. Now, okay, now, you're still in 24? Mm-hmm. Okay, now read 44. I think it's 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which are spoken to you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Excellent. So there you have kind of like a threefold division of the Jewish uh, Testament, right? You have the, what did he say? Say it again. I don't want to mess up the order. Right. And so law, five books of Moses, and then, uh, what did he say? And then prophets, right? So you're talking about all the way from, uh, all the way from, you know, uh, Isaiah all the way to the end, you know, to Malachi, Right. And uh, and then the Psalms is always in the Jewish parlance, 
when the, they refer to the Psalms in this sort of way, okay, the Psalms is always indicative of the writings. And so that would include all the po- poetic type writings, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, the Book of Job. Okay, This wisdom literature is all included in that when uh, Jews refer to just the Psalms, because of course they're not excluding any part of the Bible, so kind of, how do you sum it up, right? You don't go th- start listing every book of the Bible, <laughs> so they just refer to the Psalms as that, as that, uh, that category of, of Scripture. So uh, there you go. I mean, you have Jesus uh, telling us right there that, that once again, this is what we do. And, you know, I got into a lot of uh, discussions with folks about this. There's a big debate that arose, and... Uh, 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 how many of you guys know John MacArthur, right? And I go to the Shepherds Conference from time to time, and I went to a breakout session, and one of their professors at their seminary was teaching, Dr. Chow, and uh, he was teaching a thing about uh, Christ-centered hermeneutics, what we're talking about, in order to re- uh, debunk or to refute Christ-centered biblical theology. And, uh, and uh, what he was saying is that uh, Luke 24 is the, is the kind of a crucial text, and what he was saying there is that you know, Reformed, Covenantal-type folks, uh, they take a whole hermeneutic from this, and he says, that's not a hermeneutic. Jesus is not giving us a hermeneutic of how to read the Bible, you know, and things like that. And uh, <coughs> I, I, I tried listening to the whole thing. I almost did. But, uh, but afterwards, you know, I just thought, like, certainly they cannot possibly mean that Jesus Christ is not the center of the whole Bible. I can't possibly... So, you know, after he taught his session, I caught up to him. He was out, like, getting coffee or something. I saw him, like, oh, there's Dr. Chow. You know, and being me, impetuous how I am, you know, I just walk up and say, hey, you know, Dr. Chow, listen to your set. Can we talk? You know, sit down and talk. He was very gracious, very kind. So we sat, we talked for about 45 minutes, and I just proceeded to level some serious questions about his, uh, his thing. And I tell you what, after we were done, we had much more agreement than disagreement. I just thought, like, man, you need to reteach your session. You know what I mean? Like, the things you're saying here, like I would have accepted these things. You know, now you're like kind of, you know. Anyway, so I'm just trying to illustrate there is a divide here, you know, among theologians, you know, whether or not we're supposed to interpret the Bible this Christocentrically. Or, here's the option, or is Jesus simply scattered here and there throughout the Old Testament in certain explicit prophecies, and that's it? I don't think so. So, for example, let me just give you one easy example like how do you teach genesis chapter one chapter one the days of creation how do you teach that as a christian from a non-christocentric fashion even though the hebrew text of the uh of genesis one does not mention jesus doesn't say jesus yeshua messiah anointed one it doesn't say king it doesn't nothing right so how do we interpret that? You know how you interpret that? Because you're ruined by the New Testament, right? It's kind of like you saw the end of the movie, and then you're going to go back and watch the movie again. Oh, but don't look because you already know that part, but you're not supposed to say anything, <laughs> right? So you read Colossians chapter 1 that says that Jesus Christ created everything, everything in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, throne, dominions, everything, right? You read John chapter 1 where it says that nothing came into being without him. You know, nothing was made without him. And so, so how can you possibly read now Genesis chapter 1, knowing that that is where the creation account is, is that, and that you have all biblical warrant to say Jesus Christ created the heavens and the earth, the light and the darkness, the earth, the sea, the plants, the people. He created them in his pre-incarnate form. Questions?
Anybody? Questions? Please have questions. No? Yes, ma'am, I see that hand. Oh, no, you were just playing with your hair? Yeah, I knew it. I got, I got excited there for a second. But you see what I'm saying? It, it makes a big difference. Yes, sir? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have the spirit there, a reference to the spirit, right? Which that's, yeah, which, um, yeah, that's right. You know, like um, by the spirit, of, you know, God sends his spirit and the earth stands fast, the psalm says, you know, so, yeah. Well, what does that mean, Keda? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, You can't even give a nutshell explanation of what progressive. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like a middle, a middle ground where I guess, like, dispensationalist. I guess, I guess it depends on what it, I guess on the issue what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. They would be more willing to see than a hard, hard line dispensationalist, like some types and things like that. Yeah. Um, because kind of that's what I'm getting to where, like, something like we're talking about right now, Jesus being clear. Yeah. Yeah, you spiritualize the text, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I think that's an important point because it, it raises the point of hermeneutics. Like, how do we, how do we tie? So, there, so just so you guys understand, when you interpret the Bible in this Christocentric fashion under biblical theology, uh, there's a whole hermeneutics to this, right? Uh, you need to know a little bit of something about typology. You need to know a little bit something about the purpose of the, the various aspects of redemption. Like, for example, watch this, guys. Uh, okay, so what is the purpose of the nation Okay, in the Old Testament? What is the purpose of the temple in the Old Testament? What is the pers- purpose of the priesthood? Right? The Old Testament. Sacrifice. Those kinds of things, you know, you need to understand what, you know, the tabernacle. Now, uh, these are major. Okay, here's another one. Here's a real. You talk about dispensation, progressive. The land. How do you interpret the land? What's the function? So once you start determining these things, watch this now. Uh, the kingdom. And here we're thinking of the king. Okay. What is the purpose and the function of all these things? In the Old Testament, how do they? What's their role? You see, so what's going on in uh, what's going on in dispensationalism? I don't know if we'll ever get to Ephesians one, but we'll see. Um, it's relevant. Uh, what's going on in dispensationalism is that what there is there's a over a hyper literalism of these things, and what they're saying is that all the promises and all the words in the Old Testament that are spoken of the kingdom, the land, the tabernacle, the sacrifice, the priesthood, the temple, the nation, all of those things still are awaiting a literal fulfillment. <laughs> so, so you know, uh, you know, according to the dispensational scheme, you know, Jesus returns, he raptures the church out of the world. How many of you guys heard this already? And then, uh, yeah, right. And then, and then, uh, okay, it, so, okay, I don't disagree with the rapture. We are going to get raptured out of here. But that happens at the second coming, not seven years prior. But anyway, that's a whole different conversation. I'm trying to illustrate... This is so important. So if you haven't listened to the thing I'm saying, listen now. 
Okay, because after the return of Christ, we must have what? Thousand year reign of Christ, which is known as the millennium. Right. And the thousand year reign of Christ is how all of these promises about a kingdom and David sitting on the throne, the land being given back to Israel, all the boundaries, everything. Right. That is how everything is going to be restored back to its original glory. So. Think about that, guys. I mean, what 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 that system is saying is that you and I, as New Covenant Christians, we are still waiting. We're looking forward. We're longing for a time where we will see a future age where the kingdom is rebuilt in Jerusalem, mind you, in the geographical territory of Israel today. We will go back there. God will rebuild the temple. He will reinstitute some sort of sacrifice uh, because that's what uh, Zechariah talks about. Zechariah 14 but, uh, you know, there's going to be some sort of sacrificial system. Therefore, there must be some return to a priesthood. So you see what I'm saying? So they're saying these things must literally be fulfilled in the future. And what we're saying is, no, you miss the fact that all of these things fall into the category of typology. Typology. OK, that's what's crucial. It's like um, enter the book of Hebrews, Right. So the book of Hebrews is sort of the dispensational killer. Um, I love John MacArthur commentaries. And I mean that sincerely. Like one, every book that I've ever preached, except, except now because he doesn't have a commentary on Isaiah. I wish he did. Uh, uh, but like some of MacArthur's stuff is indispensable, invaluable. Like there's no one better on some of the stuff, some of the stuff he does on like genealogies and, and like the, the historical background of a person or a place. Or, I mean, that guy is a scholar, you know, I mean, amazing research, you know. But uh, when I was preaching through the book of Hebrews, I tell you what, I barely cracked that sucker open because there's just so much. The dispensationalism really hindered his ability to exegete the text, you know, and you j- I could just see it over. Matter of fact, Phil Johnson told me in a conversation that the one commentary that John MacArthur does not like is the book of Hebrews. He wishes he could redo it because he knows he didn't do it justice. I'm like, I wonder why. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's probably because you don't want to go there with the book of Hebrews, right? Because the book of Hebrews is telling us, look, 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 watch this. The book of Hebrews is telling us that the nation was typological of the church. The temple was typological of the temple in heaven. The priesthood is typological of Christ's priesthood. The sacrifice is typological of the sacrifice of Christ. The tabernacle, again, typological of the tabernacle in heaven. And furthermore, typological of the new covenant. How? Well, yeah, but it has to do with the veil. Is that how you spell veil? Gosh. Sorry. Veil. <laughs> Right. What does the author of Hebrews say that we have now penetrated the veil? You see. And so as long as that veil was up, uh, it was functioning to point us to something greater. Uh, Just real quick, y'all. Let's let's go to Hebrews. If you're reformed, you're going to love this verse. Chapter nine. If you're reformed, you're going to love this verse. I promise you. Verse 6. Hebrews 9, 6. Now when these things have been prepared, what things? All the furniture of the tabernacle. They've been prepared. The priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. That's like the outer court. 
But into the second, into the inner court, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance, the day of the atonement. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. Now, notice that, underline it, meditate on that, really marinate on what he just said there. The Holy Spirit is saying, wow. So by the act, now watch me, guys. By the act of the priest, watch, I'm the, I'm the priest, I'm the high priest. Going into the inner court, the Holy Spirit is speaking to the people. <laughs> Isn't that remarkable? And what he is saying is this. He's saying that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. So, so long as the physical tabernacle is being erected in the middle of Israel, right? Then the way into the veil has not been disclosed. There's only one guy that gets to do it. And even then, once a year, and even then, he has to take blood for himself because he's not qualified. So then the mystery remains, how in the world are we going to go into the holy place, the very center focal point of the presence of God? How do we get in there? We can't. Uh, even the high priest barely gets to go in there. And even when he goes in there, if he doesn't have atonement, he dies, right? So what he's saying is, which is a symbol for the present time. Look at that, right? So this is, that was all typological, symbolic of the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. That's just showing us the transient nature of the old covenant, right? Since they relate only to food, drink, various washings, regulations for the body imposed, these external things are imposed until a time of reformation. There you go. I told you, if you're reformed, you'll love this verse. Until a time of reformation, right? So this is the word reformation just means like uh, the time of a new order. Wow. So a new order has dawned. Let me ask you guys this. Religiously speaking, you guys, did any of you guys wake up today and wonder how to wash your hands or what to eat? Religiously speaking, what did you eat? We'll find out right now where you're at. <laughs> I don't even know you. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just capitalizing here. What, why did you raise your hand? You ate something uh, that was kosher? <laughs> I bet you didn't. So what I'm saying, man, is this, is that today, now that the, 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 the new order has come, the new covenant, the new ref, this, refor- this time of reformation, okay, uh, this, uh, this period of time that we're in, all of these external things have fallen away, okay? I mean, we, I don't think you understand how much we praise God. You ever seen Mecca, right, when they're doing the Hajj, the pilgrimage, right? Uh, last year, I think they did two million muslim pilgrimage all gathered in mecca surrounding the kaaba the black shrine in there and they're all bowing down and they're all doing seven times around the kaaba throwing stones at the devil and uh, performing uh, 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 different washings and all of the ceremonial things okay uh, you can shake hand with a certain hand you can go to the bathroom with a certain hand you got to eat in a certain way this is dead religion and so what uh, the book of Hebrews is telling us is that, that exter- those external performances are gone. Anybody want to speak to that? Anybody want to speak to the external performances 
of the Old Testament. Yes, sir. Hmm. So what you're saying, yeah, because Colossians chapter two is telling us, like, right, that um, that, that Jesus basically fulfills all these types and shadows, you know, and all these things. That's right. But I, I want to say this. What if you're a saint in the Old Testament? What if you're in the Old Testament economy and you're walking with God? What about that? You still got to do all this stuff. What does that mean for you? Are you involved in dead religion? No. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So if you're in the old covenant, uh, then you perceive their typological character, right? You understand these things are a type. They're a shadow of things. They're symbolic. I perform them. But here's the difference. How do you go from dead religion, dead performance to a type, a shadow, uh, something like that that's meaningful? Yes, ma'am. Yes. So then what's the key? Yes. Yeah. No question about it. And what did you say, Ricky? Faith. faith is the key. So faith, by faith, the Westminster Confession even says, you know, that by faith, when you look upon the types and shadows, the sacrifices, right, those things were not dead religion. Those things were the means of grace. So they suddenly became meaningful ways that God pointed you to the Messiah, right? And um, I was talking with somebody. Who was I talking to? I was talking with somebody uh, about their, oh, I know who it is, but I was talking to somebody who has a family member who is steeped in uh, Hebrew roots theology and, and trying to go back to messianic, mess, messianism and stuff like that. Basically, going back to like Jewish things, you know, Jewish observance and stuff like that as a new covenant Christian. So, for example, they want to try to like practice the Passover. They want to, you know, they want to refer to Jesus as Yeshua, not Jesus, you know, things like that. You know what I mean? They want to observe the Sabbath and different feasts and stuff like that. What's wrong with that, guys? Should we do that? Should we be having a rabbi come here and teach us how to observe the Passover on stage, as a lot of evangelical churches do? Why not? Brian, would you be okay with that? <laughs> Why not? Yes. Yeah, that's right. All of it's been fulfilled in Christ. And as a matter of fact, go with me to your Bibles at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, right? Uh, very serious thing here because we know the background. It's kind of like most Christians know this, that the book of Galatians is written primarily with a Jewish background in mind. In other words, there were Jewish Judaizers and they were trying to enforce Old Testament regulations, Old Testament principles on New Covenant Christians, right? So this is, this is Paul's response. In other words, what they're saying is that, yeah, you believe in Jesus, you believe in the Messiah, that's pretty good. But in order for you to be really accepted by God, there are certain external things you need to succumb to right like circumcision dietary uh laws and then here look here uh chapter four beginning in verse uh let's see here oh man verse 10 verse 9 but now that you have come to know god or rather be known by god how is it that you are turning back again to the worthless elemental things again that word uh, becomes very important to the apostle paul the greek word there stoicheon just mean, literally means man-made spirituality man-made religion okay to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. What's he talking about? Verse 10. You observe days, months, seasons, and years. Now, every uh, uh, 
commentary I read on Galatians, uh, Herman Ritterboss, for example, and others, Leon Morris and and, uh, F.F. Bruce, they all point out of the fact that this is when he talks about this and he speaks of days and he speaks of months and seasons and years. He's, this is his, Paul's way of referring to the Jewish calendar. So by ref- going back to try to observe the Jewish calendar, thinking that's something that's more spiritual, you actually are in bondage again to the worthless elementary principles, especially now that the, the fullness has come in Christ. It's like I tell people, this, okay, ready? Sunday school level illustration. It'd be like you walking up to greet me through the church doors and I look down at your shadow and go, oh, hey, what's going on, man? Hey, you're doing, you look good today, you know? You would be very insulted. You'd be like, I'm right here. Right? <laughs> I'm not down, that's my shadow. You know, that just wouldn't make any sense. Now that the substance has come, now that the actual presence of the person is here, you know, the shadow is an accurate portrayal of the person. That is his or her shadow. But th- it's how unfitting is it for you to go and, you know, and commune with the shadow? So these Galatians are communing with the shadows. And Paul is saying, hello, you know, Christ is in the building, people. You know, and so you're going to ignore Christ, but you, you think there's some sort of special mystical uh, power with the shadows of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament? You miss the whole point. And in it, you miss the supremacy of Jesus Christ, you know. Yes, sir. Yeah. That's really good. Yes, that's right. Uh, when I think about the priesthood, we think of Hebrews chapter 5, for example, the sacrifice. I'm just thinking of different texts for you guys. How about this one? John chapter 1, verse 14. Okay, you guys can write this down. What about the land? You know, how is the land? Hebrews chapter uh, 11, 13 through 16, for example. The kingdom, I mean, that should be easy enough. So I'm just giving you some verses here to understand, like, how does the New Testament occupy these Old Testament shadows? You know, well, the nation is typological of the church. That's in First Peter chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 1, going all the way to verse 10. But And then the temple, for example, you'll see that in Hebrews 8 and 9. And in many other places, like First Corinthians chapter three, for example, of, of the temple. Remember, the temple is a multi-level typology. The temple refers to heaven. The temple refers to the body of Christ, the church. The temple be- refers to the believer. So the temple is multifaceted. Okay, uh, the priesthood, also Hebrews five and following. That's where he's getting into the priesthood of Jesus Christ being superior to the priesthood of Aaron and, and uh, Zadok. And then uh, you have uh, the tabernacle. Uh, so this is John chapter 1, verse four, why, uh, 14. Why did I get that one? Why did I do that? Why did I, I pick that one? John chapter 1, verse 14. No, without looking. No, I'm just joking. You can look all you want. <laughs> what, what is it? Okay, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and what else does it say? <laughs> What's that? And we beheld his glory, right? The glory of 
the glory of the only begotten Son, right? So, so, so what is John telling us there? I'm, I'm saying this, and maybe we'll run out of time here, but that's okay. Uh, story of my life. But uh, uh, when John says, we beheld his glory, uh, he came to tabernacle among us, right? He uses that Greek word, skenao, which means uh, uh, to pitch a tent. That's what it literally means, right? To pitch a tent. He pitched a tent. Isn't that beautiful, you guys? So Jesus came. He pitched a tent among us. I'll come back to that one, one observation here. But uh, he pitched a tent among us. And then what did we see in that tent? The glory. What do you see in the, in the Holy of Holies? The glory. What glory? The glory. You see the Shekinah glory, right? And that's where the, 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 the priest, you know, the, the high priest would go in there like we talked about once a year. He would take, uh, you know, he would take uh, coals from the altar, incense. He would walk through the last veil, right? He would go into the Holy of Flames, and then he would fill the whole, the whole room. He would fill with smoke. He would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of the, um, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, right? And so think about the imagery there. As the blood is being splattered on the mercy seat, the, the little room that he's in is filling with smoke. And the menorah is filling the smoke, illuminating the smoke with light. <laughs> what is God doing right there? He is showing us that in there is where his special presence is found. That's where his glory is found. Now, go over to John 1.14, right? Because that's what John is saying. When the high priest went in there to see that glory, it was indicative of the glory that was to be found where? In Jesus, in Christ. And uh, that corresponds very well with, uh, for example, Second Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, that talk about that in the face of Jesus, prosopon, which means pr- his presence. In the very face of Jesus, we see the glory of God. Isn't that amazing? I mean, so Jesus comes to reveal that to us. The land, you know, Hebrews eleven thirteen. 13. Uh, oh, this is what I, w- I almost messed up because I wanted to emphasize this. You guys can write this down. When Jesus came to pitch a tent among us, indicative of two things. Number one, we're going to see his glory. But number two, brothers and sisters, and on a real practical level, right? If I were to go to your house and pitch a tent, yeah, you would laugh at me, right? <laughs> what are you doing? You know, going camping? You know, <laughs> you know, to us, you know, like going pitching a tent is kind of like, ugh, you know, who likes camping anymore? You know what I mean? You got Air, Airbnb, you know, like what do you? Mean? <laughs> uh, you know, but in the ancient world, to pitch a tent was the ultimate symbol of friendship. Wow! So by Jesus coming in His incarnation, His very coming is a is a is a uh, is an act of communion with his friends. What does Jesus tell the disciples? I no longer call you my servants. I call you my friends. Yes, sir. Is there anything behind it being like a tabernacle picture? Like in the tabernacle was trimmed with gilding and like. Hmm? So, in some sense, him coming to tabernacle among us would be for a time before he ultimately you know, went back to heaven and that is ultimately when we're it's not what I was thinking, and I don't know. Uh, but what I've always understood is the reason the tabernacle was mobile was because it was not until the nation had the presence of God residing in their midst that they were truly God's nation. Okay, so in this case, right? I'm saying that Christ coming 
Yeah, all I'm saying is that I don't know if the moving of the tabernacle is indicative of that. I don't know. You have to present that to me. I'm interested. It's good. Yeah. Beautiful. I just thinking of that, you know, a whole nother question. Mm-hmm. No, they're not one in the. No, they're not one in the same. They're similar, but they're not one in the same. The Judaizers uh, are people who have accepted the new covenant. They've accepted Jesus. What they're trying to do is they're trying to, they're trying to synchronize old and new covenant, right? Whereas the Pharisees would abominate the new covenant. Yeah, they didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah. Whereas the Judaizers say, yeah, this is good. You, Jesus is the Messiah. It's good that you know you believe in him, but. Yes, they are. Yeah, yeah. Just telling you, like, the difference in belief. Yeah. It's good, right? So how does Ephesians 1 have to do with anything? I've been racking my brain the whole time saying, how am I going to get back there? Okay, go back there because this is what it is. Um, In Ephesians chapter 1, this is what, uh, this is another way that we can describe biblical theology. Ephesians chapter 1, oh, man. We'll just have barely time to read it. I guess we can begin in verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed, the Father purposed in him, i.e. Christ, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, Galatians uh, 4, 4, the fullness of the times. That's the eschatological time all the way leading up to Jesus. That is, watch this now, the summing up of all things in Christ. Wow. Things in heavens, things on the earth, i.e. in him. And also we have obtained an inheritance uh, having been predestined according to the purpose, his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Uh, And there you go right there. There is the plan of salvation. There is the eternal decree of God. And there is uh, the idea that everything is summed up in Jesus Christ. The inheritance, by the way, that's um, that's not to be separated from its Old Testament roots. The inheritance is the inheritance, the reward. It's the inheritance that all the patriarchs were looking forward to. It's the inheritance that Abraham was promised. It's the inheritance of the nations. It's the inheritance, you know, of the righteousness of God that is by faith. And ultimately, the inheritance is heaven. But uh, that's how everything works Christocentrically, you know. Any last questions or comments? Isn't it marvelous? You guys see how I spend my time on this? (laughs) No questions on anything? Ask anything Sunday. We have like two minutes. No? Yeah. I got in some good conversation last week here at the church, and um, one of the things that came up was uh, a discussion about middle knowledge. And so I thought, maybe I should teach on something that has to do with the sovereignty of God, you know? So you never... (laughs) Middle knowledge. See, that's I know how to get... 
I know how to get people to say that. Yeah, middle, middle knowledge is, uh, is kind of an attempt. Uh, middle knowledge comes from a monk in the 14th century, I think it was, by the name of Molina, who taught the idea that, you know, God is sovereign, but man is free, trying to reconcile the two. And, uh, but the problem is, is what that led to is that there are certain things that God uh, has not decreed, uh, you know, so there's the possibility of different outcomes in the, in the world. Uh, so, you know, it kind of is an assault on the sovereignty of God, trying to acknowledge that he's sovereign, but at the same time uh, trying to make a space for uh, there being uh, such things as free will and things like that, things where God is not fully in control. And the outcome of Molinism is open theism, the idea that God does not, li- not only does he not decree the future, he does not even know the future. Uh, because it hasn't happened yet, God doesn't know it. You know, it's like, you think these ideas would die, right? They don't, you know. So let's go to worship before I get in more trouble. <laughs>